We're concluding our series of messages that we've been through all fall in the book of Ezra called The Hope and Promise of Revival. We're in chapter 10 this morning, so I invite you to open your Bibles there, Ezra chapter 10. What we're going to discover is that confession and doing what is right, even in a mess, are sure signs of revival. Confession and doing what is right, even in a mess, are sure signs of revival. The reason why I say that is that all revival is messy. All revival is messy. It's very easy for us to say as believers, oh, we long for revival. Be careful what you ask for. Not because revival isn't something we shouldn't seek, but because of what we'll get. We will get a mess. We will get a mess. You might say, well, what kind of a mess? The answer is sin gets exposed in revival. And we are happy for that for everybody else. <laughs> but for me, we live in a self-protecting world where we don't want our sins exposed. We live in a world where we want kind of our little kingdoms to be safe and secure from any exposure to the reality of our lives, which is we're sinners, we're broken. So this is what's happened in Ezra. Ezra has come to Jerusalem and he has discovered that there are some people who are living with women in the land and they've even established families together. Now, the text is going to say Mary, but as I've mentioned before in chapter 9, I don't think that that's the right word because it's not the word that's typically used in Hebrew for marriage. I think it is illicit relationships where they're living with people and have established homes and families and all the rest of it, and they are not right because those family relationships are dragging them into a world of compromise, dragging them away from God, and actually resulting in the potential loss of Israel as a nation. And so, understand that when this comes to Ezra's recognition that this is the these are the people that are in this place where God has allowed them to rebuild the temple and they're re-engaging in the worship of God in the temple. All of a sudden, he's aware there's a mess on our hands. And what do we do with that mess? I invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, Ezra chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Uh, it's not because we... Uh, verses 18 to 44 are unimportant that we don't read them, but rather because they're simply a list of the people who were guilty of these illicit relationships. Okay? Now, I'll read it as it's translated here with the word wives and marriage, but understand that the word 
translated wives is simply the word women, which sometimes is used for wives. Um, And the word marry, I think actually it has to do with the illicit idea of living with people and family establishment apart from a real covenant of marriage. So with that in mind, let's look at the scripture here in Ezra 10. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now... There is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, "'You have broken faith and married foreign women, "'and so increased the guilt of Israel.'" Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly." Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asahel and Josiah the son of Tikva opposed this, and Meshulam and Shebathai the Levites supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men. Heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Please have a seat. It's a mess. They've got all these relationships that they're living with foreign women and even they have children established in these homes, and now revival is broken out, and they're aware of the real harm that is going on and the potential disappearance of the people of God. 
Confession and doing what is right, even in a mess, are sure signs of revival. Now, one of the phrases that I just meditated over with joy is found in verses 1 to 4. Even now, there is hope. Verse 2. You see, the holiness of God brings a physical response on the part of Ezra. Ezra prays and make con- makes confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. He, in chapter 9, he realizes this problem with these people married to uh, actually living with these foreign women, and, and he's weeping and casting himself down. It's a great assembly of Israel gathered together, and I want you to notice the generational solidarity here. We have men and women and children, everybody gathered together, and by the way, if you want to think about movements of revival, you need to recognize that quite often, in fact, in more modern times, almost always comes through young people, young people. And so we should not disparage the work of God among young people because they're the ones that are going to be the, perhaps the, the initiators of great revival movements, whether it's in our own fellowship or it's more broadly in our community or more broadly in our nation or more broadly in our world. The great modern missionary movement started by a bunch of guys praying together, young college students. And so, I love the generational solidarity that's happening here in in Ezra. And notice the specific confession of this guy named Shechaniah in verse 2. Now, there's several Shechaniahs in the Bible. We don't know which one this is. The name actually means the one who is intimate with God. And notice what he prays. We have broken faith with our God. We. Now, there's no evidence that he personally did this. But he is making confession collectively for the entire group and owns the sin. We have broken faith. We're living with foreign women from the peoples of the land. You might say, well, what what does it mean to be living with these foreign women from the peoples of the land. I'm glad you asked that question because I have a, thank you, I have a map. So what we have here is uh, the various uh, provinces in the Persian Empire in the region. And I should have said this in the first service, but this is actually Eastern orientation. So up is East, okay, if you're kind of wondering why are we looking at this sideways, the answer is that we look at maps sideways. There's a reason why you call it orientation, okay? All ancient maps had an eastern orientation, and that's why it's called orientation, okay? Looking to the east, okay? Lecture over on that one. But here's all these places. Gilead, Megiddo, Samaria, Ashdod, Arabia, Idumea, Judah. Okay, those are all the regions. And what was happening was that exiles were coming back and they were living with women from all around here that didn't, they weren't Jewish. 
And what was happening, and they didn't put away their gods. You see, the issue wasn't that they married foreign women because Ruth was a foreigner, she was a Moabitess, but what did she do? You remember what she said to Naomi? Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. You see, God always invited the foreign countries to come and see and be part of the nation. There was provision made for becoming a part of the covenant community. But these women were refusing that. They were instead worshiping the gods and the idols all around them. As, and, and homes and children were being established with this mess. And so this is why there is this weeping Ezra has come from Persia and he, he sees this and he's just blown away by the mess. And he, re, he preaches about it and the people gather and weep bitterly. You see, as part of Ezra's words in chapter 9, he says, Would you not be angry with us, God, until you've consumed us so that there's no remnant or any to escape? O oh, Lord God of Israel, you're just. We are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. There's that we again. We are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this. They're recognizing how horrific this is. Shechaniah in verse two says, we're living with these foreign women from the peoples of the land. And then at the end of verse two, but even now, there's hope for us in spite of it. In spite of the mess, in spite of the sin, in spite of the rebellion, in spite of all the wrong, there's hope. And may I suggest to you that even today, here in this world, 2023, in spite of a compromised church, in spite of the loss of biblical authority, in spite of the notion that of, well, I'll just call it an obsession with oppression. We have an idea that's just dominating our culture that there are only two groups of people in the world. There are oppressed people and there are oppressors. That's a Marxist idea, by the way. I won't take time to trace that, but that's a Marxist idea. There's only two groups of people, oppressed and oppressors. And the idea that is running rampant in our culture is that if you are an oppressed person or an oppressed group, you can do no wrong. And if you are an oppressor, you can do nothing right. In the world we live in, in spite of that, in spite of a compromised church, in spite of the loss of biblical authority, in spite of sin, both hidden and open, I love that phrase. Even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let's take hold of that, friends, in our prayers. Let's not just say, oh God, we confess the sin of other people. It's all their fault. But that, like Ezra and Shechaniah, we would say, Lord, we, we have sinned. We confess it. Verses three and four, there's a remedy, but it's painful. There's a remedy, 
but it's painful. Verse 3, make, let us make a covenant with God. This word covenant gets tossed around quite a bit in Christian circles, and they use it, people use it way too loosely. This should be recognized as something very unusual. You make very few covenants in your life, and they are absolutely sacred and inviolable. So, for example, one that married people make is a marriage covenant. That means that you are not merely making an agreement with one another, but you are making together an agreement with God that this will not be shaken. They're making a covenant with God here at this point. In spite of all the mess, in spite of all these living with these people and the families that are being built up as a result and the mess that it's creating in terms of just the, the loss of the worship of the genuine true God and the potential loss of the entire nation of Israel because they just get syncretized and absorbed into the peoples of the land eventually. In spite of all of that, there's hope and the remedy is a covenant, an inviolable agreement with God. And notice how messy that is, because part of that covenant is to put away all these women and their children, to separate from them. This is why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm uh, thinking that it's not marriage, Put away that, put them away. That's gonna be a mess. Trying to figure out how to do that and how to care for them financially, how to care for these children. According to the God-given authorities in the community, he says do this. Look at verse three. According to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, it's according to the law of God, let it be done according to the law. And in verse four, Shechaniah says, You've got permission, and I'm giving you backbone to do this. Arise, it is your task. We are with you. Be strong and do it. The people of Israel are so needy that they're saying, we want you, Ezra, as the priest and prophet to come and enter into this mess and do whatever it takes for us to be right with God whatever it takes. Now that, do you see why praying for revival cannot be done just cavalierly, loosely? It can be a frightening thing, but even now, there's hope. Verses five through eight, there is no repentance without pain. You know, sometimes we want to have uh, uh, revival and repentance uh, and have it be painless and just filled with ever-increasing blessing. It doesn't exist. There is no repentance without pain. The, verse 5, there's the oath of the making of the covenant. Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. They're making this covenant. And yet, in spite of all of that, still, verse 6, Ezra repents. He goes to the, withdraws from before the house of the Lord. He goes to a chamber and he spends the night 
fasting, going without bread, no water, and spends it mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And in verse 7, there's a proclamation, the calling of a solemn assembly to gather all of the people together for this assembly at Jerusalem. We're going to take care of this mess once and for all. Gather. And he had this enforcement mechanism. If you don't come, you'll be taxed 100%. Not 100% of your income, 100% of your net worth. Everything you got is going to be taken away from you if you don't come. Do you see it there in the text? Verse 8, anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited. 100% tax on net worth. And he himself will be banned from the congregation of the exiles. Send out, sent away. You're gone. You're out of here. There's no repentance without pain. And so, all through, and these green circles here, are all the places in the Persian period where we know Jews lived, okay? So from all over, people were called to gather at Jerusalem, which is right here, gather at Jerusalem for this solemn assembly. There's no repentance without pain. So now let's look at this difficult path to obedience. Uh, there's often a hard physical path to obedience. Did you know that? That when we repent, sometimes there are things that are actually physical that happen that bring us discomfort and pain. Verse 9, they're gathered within three days on the ninth month and the 20th day of the month. That puts them around November and December. Okay, the people are sitting in an open square before the house of God, um, and uh, they're trembling. Trembling because of the matter, because this is a mess, and they got to figure out how to fix it, and they're trembling because of the heavy rain. So let's look at some maps of, Jer of the temple in Jerusalem. This is the first temple period, Solomon's temple, and at that point, there was no platform. It was just a hill here, and the temple was established there. And then in the second temple, a little bit after, well, hundreds of years after Ezra, there was a mount that was, platform that was built by King Herod right before Jesus was born. And um, that wasn't there in Ezra's time. It was just a hill, okay? And then this is a modern map, and so I'm going to suggest that Ezra and these people gathered together at the base of the hill right here for this convocation just outside the temple to meet, okay? And they've gathered together, and the people are trembling. There's two reasons. One's a spiritual reason, one is a physical reason, spiritual reason. The matter is heavy and weighty and messy and they don't know what to do about it. But the second thing is that it's November, December, uh, maybe a couple weeks from now, maybe a week or so from now, 
and they are in <laughs> the middle of what Carol and I called black winter. Okay? Uh, Israel has two seasons, dry season and miserable. And the miserable season is when it's raining, and they love the rain because the rain brings the crops and all of that, but it's miserable. It can be hard, driving, cold rain. Uh, generally temperatures in the 40s, maybe upper 30s, and there's obviously no central heat. Our heating system where we lived produced smoke in our apartment rather than heat, and so it was equally miserable. And this heavy rain brings about all kinds of problems like mold and funguses, and we had a huge mold problem in our apartment that Carol was determined to get rid of, and in her process of trying to get rid of the mold, got the mold under one of her fingernails, and her fingernail disappeared, and it was years before her finger was right and she got rid of the fungus. And all those laws in the Old Testament, remember of Leviticus, what happens when you have a fungus or something breaks out, all that's real, okay? And it comes because of black winter, and so these folks are sitting, are standing out here in this open, and they're trembling because the matter at hand and the heavy rain. Now, one thing that you need to know is that all preachers are oblivious to physical circumstances. Okay? All preachers are absolutely oblivious to physical circumstances. It could be 140 degrees in here, I wouldn't notice, okay? It could be 25 degrees in here. I wouldn't notice. People ask me, are you bothered by children crying in church? Nope. Are you bothered by the fact that now that we have windows in the back and there's people, nope, not bothered by that. And Ezra is not bothered by the heavy rain. He's preaching away, okay? He, verse 10, stood up, said to them, you've broken faith, married foreman women, so increase the guilt of Israel, Con make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, do his will, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land, from the foreign women. He's, he's preaching. You've broken faith. You've increased guilt in Israel. Here's the remedy, make confession, do God's will, separate from these people. Separate from the women you're living with. Did you notice that they didn't do anything to quote-unquote manage the revival here? There's no worries about creature comforts on the part of Ezra. <laughs> He's not saying, oh, we don't have enough chairs, or let's get some raincoats. No, he's, he's oblivious to that. If there was ever a meeting that was not driven by church marketing people, it was this one, Right? Here they are standing out in a heavy rain in the middle of black winter. The response of the people in verses 12 and 13, it's as you say, you're right. They answered with a loud voice, it is so. We must do as you have said, no excuses, no yes buts, no accusations at Ezra for being ungracious or harsh. One of the sure signs that you're not in revival is that people make excuses, they have yes buts, and they attack the preacher for being ungracious and harsh. Instead, what do the people say? Yep, you're right. Absolutely right. But they do have a pressing concern, which Ezra didn't have because he's a preacher. 
The pressing concern, they said, is, you know, there's a lot of people here, (laughs) men, women, and children, and it's a time of heavy rain. We can't stand out here in the open. (laughs) We're going to all catch cold and die, you know? And the second thing they say is, you know, this is a problem that can't be resolved right here. It's going to take some time to figure out how to separate, how to care for the needs of the women and the children. They're not just going to send them out to starve. Where are they to go? You see, revival is messy. And so the people say to Ezra, how about we do this in stages? The people's proposal Let's have the officials stand for us in this heavy rain, verse 14. Um, I'll give you some pictures of rain here. Look at that poor person walking up the road there. It's it's windy and they're just walking in this driving rain. Um, And it's hilly, right? I mean, it's got lots of hills and so the water just runs everywhere and you always get your feet soaked up to your knees, you know. Um, it's It's a difficult path. Um, making appointments uh, to, to do this. You know, let me just show you some more pictures here. This is, this, is the, um, this is the walkway that leads up to the Temple Mount today. Uh, it's where the Muslims walk up here to, uh, to the Temple Mount these days. And this area right in here is where I believe Ezra may have met with, these, with the people. And here's a couple of pictures that I want to just share with you. This is a street here that's at the base of the Temple Mount that Jesus walked on that street, okay? It's bent because the Romans threw great big heavy stones down onto the pavement when they destroyed the temple. But in the Old Testament, in Ezra's time, before this street was ever built, I believe this is where Ezra may have gathered with the people. And uh, a few years ago, when I took a group here, it's in the middle of a driving rain. Uh, Cold winter was coming to an end, but we got one day of it, you know? And I thought, awesome. We gather people around, right in the middle picture there, we're headed to an area where we're gonna stand and talk. And I read Ezra chapter 10, And I go, we're experiencing it. Here's this heavy rain and I'm having to shout because people can't hear and they're all standing around huddled masses. (laughs) You know what they wanted? People in my group wanted to do? Can we go back to the bus? I said, you're living this. This is a lot, this is a living, no, we're cold. We're uncomfortable. We don't like this. You see, that, that too is part of the real thing, right? Ezra, oblivious to the circumstance, and, and all the people going, we're dying out here, right? Um, <clears throat> there's a map here. So what, what we had was people that are gathering from all over the region then to Jerusalem in stages now in order to deal with this problem. Let's appoint those who are living with foreign women, have the elders and judges in each city come at an appointed time, come with them, and we will deal with this problem. Look at verse 14. Let our our officials stand for the whole assembly. 
Let all in our cities who have taken foreign women come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until, listen, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Let's keep at this thing. Revival is messy, but let's not let the mess deter us from the pursuit of God. Verse 15, there were two guys that opposed this solution, and there were two other fellows who joined the two guys who opposed them, but apparently they did not get their way, because in verses 16 and 17, the people followed this plan. They went through it family by family. It took three months to get through all of the mess, and it ended on the one-year anniversary of Ezra leaving Babylon to come into the land. That's when it ended. They finally got through it all on the one-year anniversary of Ezra leaving Babylon to come to Jerusalem. Verses 18 to 44 is the result of this messy process. Some of the priests had been living with foreign women, verses 18 to 22. Some of the Levites, verse 23, some of the singers, verse 24, some of the gatekeepers, verse 24. Why are those people singled out? Well, first, because there's leadership that's involved in this compromise, which adds even further to the deterioration of the national integrity before God. But it's also, I want to suggest that uh, some of those folks are people who are particularly engaged in the arts, And those folks are particularly vulnerable to exploitation, to being exploited, and to compromise. And then verses 25 to 44 is a list of ordinary Israelites. It's a difficult path, isn't it? You know, sometimes we want to portray the gospel as believe in Jesus and everything will be right with you. That is a distortion of the gospel. In fact, it is not the gospel. There comes a point in sin, and listen here, listen carefully, there comes a point in sin where there are no easy, painless solutions. The problems created by our sin are things that we potentially can live with for the rest of our lives. There was a man in the church that I grew up in. His name was Harvey. He sold Bibles for a living. Not for a living, but one of the things he did in addition to his job was selling Bibles. I bought a Bible from him as a nine-year-old. And he was so excited my interest in the Bible and he showed me how my Bible worked and all of that. He said, Scott, I, I wasted my life in foolishness and drunkenness all of the strong years of my life and now my health is broken and I can never get it back. But I see you're a young man who's serious about your interest in the Lord and I am going to pray for you every day that the Lord will have his hand upon your life and use you in powerful ways that I, just by reason of the fact that I don't have the physical health because of the things I have done in my past, 
I don't have the physical health that I, can, that I wish I could do. And Harvey prayed for me every day for the rest of his life. There are things that happen as a result of sin that create difficulties where there is no easy, painless solution. There's always forgiveness for the one who repents, right? Always forgiveness. There's always a looking to the cross. But there is no guarantee that life here will get better. In fact, for many people who come to know Jesus, really and personally, initially, especially, things can get worse. Far worse in some cases. They find out that they need to make restitution to people. It costs them money. There are relationships that are broken and fractured and may never be restored. But if you come to Jesus, you will have God. You will have his blessing on your life. And you will have eternal life with him. You know, Jesus told two parables along this line. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Is Jesus telling a lesson there, finders keepers? That's not the lesson. The lesson that Jesus wants to tell us is that there is things in our life that we're going to try to protect our own life and our own kingdom. And when we see the gospel and we see infinite joy set before us, we forsake it all to follow Jesus. He's the treasure. He follows up with another parable. The king, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Is he telling us something about entrepreneurship or of, of sailing, of, of, of how, to, how to buy and sell goods? No, what he's saying is that there's something of infinite value that God is holding out for you. That thing of infinite value is the kingdom of God. He will give it to everyone who repents and believes in Jesus. Are you willing to give up everything you have? Knowing that it will create a mess. Knowing that there are some things that cannot be quote unquote fixed in this life. Jesus said, follow me. There are four applications that I want to make to this text this morning. First is, you know, I grew up in a, in a world of Christianity that was probably somewhat legalistic. You know, they gave a bunch of rules that aren't in the Bible that you had to follow. If you followed those rules, then you were thought of as spiritual. That's a world that should be rejected, right? Reject that world. Don't have a bunch of man-made rules and follow them and think that you're okay. 
But let me suggest that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in the modern American church, where instead of saying we'll throw away man-made rules for the freedom that we have in Christ, what we're saying today is we'll throw out all rules. We'll throw out the rules of the Bible. We'll throw out God's laws. And we will be indistinguishable from the world. The lesson here is not in Ezra is not to say, oh, well, Israel had this problem of not separating from the gods around them. And I know the lesson for us is we have a problem separating from the gods around us. And we don't think enough about that as believers today. We're so enamored of our freedoms that we don't recognize that there there are significant ways in which we ought to be different from the world around us. Second application has to do with marriage. You know, while we look at this chapter and we go, oh, tisk tisk, aren't the Israelites sad for doing all this? Meanwhile, we live in marriages that are broken, that aren't seeking the kingdom of God. May I offer to you that one of the ways that we can repent and see revival and sometimes it will get messy in your marriage relationship before it gets better, is to speak to your spouse and talk openly about the things, the sins, the issues that are going on. And I would suggest that you speak first about your own sins rather than your partner's. (laughs) Might be a healthier way to begin that conversation. To say, I want a real godly marriage. I don't want a fake relationship where we're all pretending something that isn't there. It will get messier before it gets better. It will. But will you say before God, I want God to rule every relationship I have, including the most important one in this world, the one where I've made a covenant before God, my marriage. One of the reasons why this is so important is the way in which the scripture itself connects Christian marriages to putting on display the relationship between Christ and his church. That in our families, our homes, our children get a picture of what Christ's relationship with the church is by the marriage that they observe between mother and father. It's the way in which the world sees the relationship between Christ and the church by the marriages that we have. So rather than look at Israel and go, well, tisk tisk on them, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking into our own lives to say some serious self-examination is in order about evaluating whether our marriages glorify God. The third is that the family is the building block of society. That's being eroded today in our broader culture. But let it be said of Christians that we will endure any mess in order to have our families be those building blocks that bring everyone into an understanding of the glory of God. The last thing that I'll ask is, what about you? As we've gone through this series in Ezra, As we've looked at this chapter, chapter 10, are there ways in which the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, is speaking to your own heart, identifying sin, 
You might say, well, it's too messy. I can't possibly touch that because if to reveal that, and to, it's just gonna make a mess. I'm just gonna keep it covered up. My invitation to you is not reveal it and it will all be great. Don't worry about it. No. But my counsel to you is it's so worth it. You will have gained God. You will have a relationship with him unlike you've never known before. And you will have one to walk through your mess instead of trying to hide it. This morning as we conclude, I want to take time for us to pray. Pray these three prayers. We're not going to gather in groups today. We're just going to do this in the quietness of our own seats to alone with the Lord. <clears throat> First is ask the Lord to bring your own sin to your attention. The second is to ask the Lord to reveal ways that our church assembly is in sin. And here I would especially commend to you our present oak leaf. It has some unbelievably insightful articles on the issues of, of pride and hypocrisy that may be helpful on this question. And the third is to ask the Lord for guidance in how to deal with such weighty matters. So let's take time to, to get alone with God and I'll walk you through each of these areas. Lord, we begin, we begin this, this morning by asking you to bring each of our own sins to our attention. Search us. See if there's any wicked way in me. Heavenly Father, in your kindness, bring our own sin to our attention and help us to know that there's healing and help from you. You will forgive us if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, Lord, we want to ask you to reveal ways that our church assembly is in sin.
Lord, our church is only a collection of sinners saved by grace. That being so, we know that there are ways in which together we have sinned against you. Please help us to identify that and to confess it and to forgive, ask you for forgiveness. It may be a messy process. There may be relationships here that are so broken that people see no way out of healing. But we would ask that you would do that soul surgery among us. As our Oakleaf newsletter is on the subject of hypocrisy and pride, we pray about those two particular sins that you would reveal them to us through that, the ministry of that um, newsletter and help us to overcome those sins, Lord. Now, Lord, we ask you for guidance in how to deal with such weighty matters as these. Would you help us? Lord, we are moved by the quietness of this moment. We do ask you to do your good work in us. By your goodness and mercy, bring revival. Messy as it may be. Lord, confession and doing what is right even in a mess are the sure signs of revival. Help us as your people so to confess our sins and to do what we know you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.